Hey, this is Robert Mitchell at High Tide in the Dreamtime. And I think this is episode 23. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, you know, I'm, I want these podcasts to become a little more conversational and a little bit more fun and have a little bit of a raconteur-y sense to them. So I'm going to tell a little story today that's about Buddhism and psychedelics. It's not on my website, goingquantum.org, because it just happened the other day. It was a synchronicity, and I always like to share synchronicities when I have them. So I was in Venice the other day. What was I doing there? I don't know. I was visiting somebody. Was that storage or something? Something mundane, and I was driving down Rose Avenue and standing by the side of the road, dumping his garbage into a trash can was Jack Cornfield. And if you don't know who Jack Cornfield is, he is probably the pro the preeminent uh, Vipassana teacher in the West. And he's got a really fascinating history. And I know his history because he was a family friend of my mother's in the 70s. They go way back and he would come and stay with us sometimes in our house there. And he was this little sort of unique man who his story was, is I think that he either volunteered, I think he volunteered. Well, I think maybe he got drafted after college and he was a conscientious objector in uh, for the Vietnam War. And I think that maybe he was a... Um, EMT uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, could be. I, I think that's how, how I'm recalling it. Anyway, afterwards, he became a forest monk with Akon Ka, who is this amazing Buddhist master. And I think it was Thailand or Burma. The details are a little elusive to me. But once he did that, he came back to the United States. And he was really the first person to bring Theravada Buddhism, Theravada Buddhist meditation, um, Vipassana to the West, him and Joseph Goldstein. He was a real innovator and a real unique character in doing this. And it's become part of everyday life, you know, with mindfulness and all that sort of stuff. And he really, it really couldn't have been done without his work. Like he's just, you know, he's like the Michael Jordan of uh, mindfulness. Anyway, uh, when I when he was in my house as a kid, uh, he was just, you know, I was sort of like a jock. I liked to play football, baseball. Me and my dad made fun of him a little bit because um, my mom was sort of out there and she would go on retreats with him and stuff like that. And Anyway, but he was always a pleasant presence and, um, you know, uniquely... Uh, affected by his meditation practice and his teaching. So there was really no one like him. And in fact, when I went to the California Institute of Integral Studies, it was on his recommendation that I go there for my graduate studies because of what I was interested in. And he also, a couple years before, uh, suggested I go work at Esalen for a summer, which I did, which was very formative and I'll talk about in my next podcast because I have a lot of funny stories about that. But anyway... So I saw Jack 
in, in, in Venice. And I literally remember the last time I saw him was 1992. I was in San Francisco going to graduate school and my mom came to visit me. And she showed up and, you know, I was living in the hate. And, you know, it, I was more grungy than a hippie. Like, you know, I was just sort of caught up in the... Uh, in the generational pull of grunge and my hair was halfway down my back and my jeans were ripped and I was in a flannel shirt, I think. And my, uh, I was caught in the generational tides. I think that's what had happened to me. I picture somewhere. They're pretty funny. But anyway, my mom showed up and she was like, are you on drugs? And <laughs> because my jeans, I think it was because my jeans were torn or maybe, my hair was long, but that was sort of her reaction to me. And I said, well, no, not really. I said, I have done some mushrooms, um, but it's not anything I'm doing regularly. But it's been, you know, it's been influential at that point. I think at that point, I was probably about 22 or 23. Anyway, one of her uh, plans while she was there was for us to go to visit Jack at Spirit Rock. And Spirit Rock is this meditation center he has in, I think it's in Fairfax in Marin. And it's really impressive and there's wonderful teachers there and it's an amazing property. And they give Dharma talks there and they have, um, they have retreats and, you know, like day-long retreats and like, you know, every, I don't know, at the time, you know, like every Wednesday night there was a, you know, a, a talk for the community and oftentimes it would be Jack or it'd be a visiting teacher. Maybe if you were lucky, it was someone from Thailand or Burma from a, from a forest monster. I mean, it's pretty interesting. And hundreds of people would show up like maybe three, 400 people. And then you sit after the talk, you know, you'd sit in this big hall with other people meditating. It was pretty cool. Anyway. So after Jack's talk in the sit, we went up, to say hi. And I think the last time Jack had seen me before that uh, day, I was probably the quarterback on my high school football team and pretty jockey. And from that time till that day, a lot had changed um, personally and just in my worldview and all that sort of stuff. And we walked up and Jack looked at me and he goes, oh, Robert, far out. Because a lot of, because I guess he'd seen a change in six years. But anyway, he gave me a hug and he gave my mom a hug. And my mom looked at him and said, Robert is doing mushrooms. And it was, it was so shocking because I think my, it was the closest, Jack was the closest thing we had to like family clergy because my mom was sort of like a, marginal kind of pot smoking Buddhist. And, you know, that's sort of what I grew up with anyway. So she, there she was, she, she dropped the bomb on Jack that I'd been doing mushrooms. And I think that she thought I was going to get admonished by him. <laughs> um, and anyway, so he looks at me and he gets this big smile on his face and he goes, I can, I, his face lit up and he goes, Oh, a good mushroom experience is like a month-long meditation retreat. 
And I saw my mom's face fall because she was so disappointed that her sort of her 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 volley at me hadn't hadn't worked. And then I remember he went on and he told some story about being in Boston, maybe in the Boston Commons, maybe in college, because I think he went to Dartmouth. Um, and him being at some church that was in Boston, I can't remember what it was, but he was saying that he had been on LSD and he had literally heard Gabriel's trumpets blowing throughout the Boston Commons. And it was super profound for him. So um, I think that my mom was a little disappointed in his reaction. And in her own way, she was a little more square than she thought she was. And his response was just so uh, kind of ambivalent or just kind of, there was no morality in what, what she'd said. And I think... At the same time, um, I had read a book that Jack, it was a, a collection of essays called Theogens and the Future of Religion that was really about the impact that psychedelics and I think MDMA as well was going to have in future religious thought. And sort of at that moment, you know, I also think I got a few years later, Zigzag Zen came out and I've talked about that on other podcasts. But what happened last week was I was driving on Rose and there was Jack dumping his garbage into a trash can on Rose. And it had been 28 years since I'd seen him. And he had a mask on, you know, like a, a surgical mask, like we all do these days. And he'd aged 28 years and he had this mask on, but it was so clearly him. And I'm sure I'd age too. And I just sort of kind of stuck my head out the window and I said, hey, Jack, it's Robert Mitchell. And he smiled and he waved and he said, hey, Robert. And it was just, you know, it's a very nice moment. But for me, it really brought things kind of full circle in a way because I remember his suggestion that I went to CIS, which is where that I met all those people who were sort of very... Uh, psychedelic positive because they'd used it clinically and they knew that the differences that it made in people's lives and in their consciousness and doing that work now, it was kind of awesome seeing him and it really made me kind of see the uh, synthesizing of a lot of parts of my life. And I guess he's in LA now because I think he's married to somebody who lives in Los Angeles. So it was just this remarkable synchronistic moment where my past and my present all came together. And it really reminded me, like I'd spoken about in an earlier podcast that I think I'd called, um, what was it? Psychedelics in Slow Motion. Because it was about, it was about how meditation and, and psychedelics go hand in hand. But it's also uh, worth contemplating the relationship between Buddhist thought and psychedelics. And, you know, I think a lot of the Buddhist teachers, if you read, there, there's a few books on it. There's, I have a few books on it. And if anybody's interested on what they are, I can put them in touch. I, can, I can't remember the titles now. I know Zig Zag Zen's one and maybe... 
psychedelic Buddhism in America or something like that. It might be the title of the other, but I do know what they are. I have them in my collection of books. I think that most Buddhist teachers end up feeling like psychedelics are a opportunity to experience the mind in an unusual way outside of the ego's dominance. But that once you've done that, it's the discipline of meditation that makes that understanding stick and that transforms the ego and makes it more porous to other sort of more quantum aspects of consciousness, which are available to us if we can relax our conditioned states. And I don't know that there's any consensus on the long-term application of, of psychedelics in Buddhism. I think that, you know, if you've really, really applied yourself with meditation, you know, month, years and years and years and years, they're not as necessary. But if you're in a intermediate stage or a beginning stage, they can really point out the uh, topography out ahead of you. And I know that um, for a fact that deep meditation states and psychedelic states are almost identical in the brain. And you will or one will encounter things in their meditation that they encounter in their psychedelic experience. So for those who are thinking about these things and for those who are contemplating these things and for those who are interested in how their consciousness works and in expanding their consciousness with tools that are both in oneself and outside oneself, it's just something interesting to think about. And it's also interesting to note that almost every um, Buddhist teacher that uh, I know of, and or a Western Buddhist teacher, I should say, because it's not true. Although there is some belief that in Vajrayana Buddhism uh, in the North, that there was use of psychedelics in their shamanic, cultures, the Bon tradition in, in Tibet, which preceded Tibetan Buddhism. The thing about Buddhism that's really cool is everywhere Buddhism goes, it takes on the local uh, culture. And that includes the religious culture. So in South Asia, it looks a lot like the origins of, of Hinduism and is influenced by that because the Buddha himself was uh, Hindu. And in the north, uh, in Nepal and Tibet, where they had this bond tradition, which was like the shamanic earth-based uh, tradition where like a, a tonka, a Tibetan tonka is, is a artifact of the bond tradition. It's not something that Buddhism created. It's something that was there before uh, there was Buddhism, but Buddhism kind of m- merges with the with the local culture and like it's doing in the West. Like there's an American Buddhism now that has everything to do with American culture and it'll develop over the next few hundred years to be less Eastern, uh, less Zen in some places, less uh, Theravada in other places and less Mahayana in other places and it'll, it'll merge with American culture. It's very uh, versatile that way. Anyway, um, 
so how I want to tie things up in all this in, in, in my talk is that um, there is a fetishism in the psychedelic community where people think that psychedelics are the way. And I can say, honestly, they are not. Um, one of my teachers, and I've mentioned this in another podcast, John Dyson Buxbazen, who wrote a book, great book. I think it's called Zen in Plain English. And I sat with him for once a week for about 10 years. And he was interested in my psychedelic use because he himself had experienced his own. And, you know, we had a few conversations about it, but basically, uh, what he said about it was that it could be a, a, a doorway but it could also become a revolving door. And I think people who think that psychedelics are the way and that they can continue to just do psychedelics, uh, they get stuck in the psychedelic state. And unless you integrate those uh, experiences in your daily life, they will just repeat. You know, like you'll kind of get back into that space and that space will be like, wait a minute, we already talked about this. Why are you back here already? Um, I've had that experience. Um, and so you really, I think, need to use, one really needs to use psychedelics judiciously and then do what I, I saw the psychiatrist talking at Tibet House with uh, my friend Anthony Bosis maybe six months ago. It was pre-COVID for sure. Um, and she was a psychiatrist, a Mexican psychiatrist, who I think had been working with ayahuasca in the Amazon but also had been working in Mexico with people who'd had psychotic breaks from 5-MeO-DMT experiences, which is fairly common. And if you don't know what 5-MeO-DMT is, um, I may have a podcast about that. Maybe I already did. I think I did. But it just sort of makes traditional psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, and um, mescaline seem like beer. And so she worked with a lot of people who'd had psychotic breaks from using that, that particular psychedelic, something I wouldn't recommend to anybody, but she had this saying, and I hate using this kind of language, but she said that in the Amazon, where I don't think you need to go to have psychedelic experiences, the people who'd worked the longest with ayahuasca, they'd said the important thing is that afterwards you walk the medicine. And I think that the real value in these experiences is if they are changing your day-to-day -day experience and changing how you experience your day-to-day. -day. Because if they're not, then they're just phantasms. And they don't last. And people can get addicted to getting into those phantasm states. So when you hear about people doing something a hundred times, you know, I think the last profound psychedelic experience I had was over two years ago and I'm not particularly motivated to have another one anytime soon because I feel like I'm still harvesting information from it and I think people should have that kind of judiciousness in their experience as well anyway so that's my little Buddhism psychedelics uh synchronicity episode. I hope you enjoy it. I think there's some good stuff in there. And I think my next one's going to be about Esalen because Esalen's going through a lot right now, which is this center in Big Sur. And I lived there for a few months when I was a young man. And I have funny stories to tell about it that um, 
I think will be entertaining. And we can look forward to that maybe later in the week. All right. I hope everybody's well and healthy and having a good week. And I look forward to speaking to everyone soon. Uh, This has been Robert Mitchell at High Tide uh, in the Dreamtime. And the episode was Buddhism and Psychedelics. And if you want to check out my website, I am at www.goingquantum.org.